Today's scripture reading comes from Matthew chapter 20, verses 1 through 16. Listen now to the word of the Lord. For the kingdom of heaven is like a master of a house who went out early in the morning to hire laborers for his vineyard. After agreeing with the laborers with a, for a denarius a day, he sent them into his vineyard. And going out about the third hour, he saw others standing idle in the marketplace. And he, he said to them, you go into the vineyard too, and whatever is right, I will give you. So they went. Going out again about the sixth hour and the ninth hour, he did the same. And about the eleventh hour, he went out and found others standing. And he said to them, why do you stand here idle all day? They said to him, because no one has hired us. He said to them, you go into the vineyard too. And when evening came, the owner of the vineyard said to his foreman, call the laborers and pay them their wages, beginning with the last up to the first. And when those hired about the 11th hour came, each of them received a denarius. Now, when those hired first came, they thought they would receive more, but each of them also received a denarius. And on receiving it, they grumbled at the master of the house, saying, These last worked only one hour, and you have made them equal to us, who have borne the burden of the day and scorching heat. But he replied to one of them, Friend, I am doing you no wrong. Did you not agree with me for a denarius? Take what belongs to you and go. I choose to give to these this last worker as I give to you. Am I not allowed to do what I choose with what belongs to me? Or do you begrudge my generosity? So the last will be first, and the first last. The word of the Lord. The Lord be with you. Uh, welcome. Uh, before I begin, I just want to remind you, uh, in this season of Lent, uh, we are trying to give, fast, and pray every Wednesday. And so I want to just remind you and invite you to join us uh, for giving today. Uh, as we mentioned last time, we will be taking a collection uh, for Ukraine today. And the church will match whatever is given up to $2,500. Uh, as you know, you've been watching the news at all. Uh, the refugee crisis now um, is, is getting quite uh, catastrophic. So uh, whatever um, you can contribute to uh, will be much uh, appreciated. And we'll be giving a donation together uh, to the PDA, the um, Presbyterian Disaster Assistance, uh, for their work uh, with the refugees. Uh, also, again, just continue to ask you to pray uh, and fast uh, on Wednesdays uh, if, as you are able and to invite you all to join us for our prayer meetings on Wednesday evenings at 9 o'clock. Uh, we began um, praying through the Psalms, uh, the first 30 Psalms this past Wednesday, and um, I thought it was really, really great. Um, I didn't expect it, but as we were praying through the Psalms, uh, I found my mind just kind of drifting toward Ukraine. I don't know if others had the same experience, but so many of the prayers, I felt like these are the kinds of prayers that uh, I might be praying um, under siege and uh, when life was uh, difficult. So again, I want to just invite all of you, uh, if you didn't join us this past Wednesday, to come this Wednesday uh, as we pray through uh, the Psalms together. All right. Um, I don't know about your initial impressions about this parable uh, that you just heard, 
but this is really among Jesus' least liked parables. Most people just don't like this parable very much. Uh, nearly everyone has this kind of visceral reaction, uh, and they side with the complainer, right, that what the master of the house did is just wrong. It's not right. It just seems unfair. Uh, I think most of us have this sort of basic sense of what is fair that goes something like this, right? That if I work 12 hours doing some job and another person does one hour doing the same exact thing, I should be paid more, right? I mean, that, that's, that's fair. If I work 12 hours and this person works one hour, I should get paid more. So if this parable kind of rubbed you the wrong way, uh, I suspect you're in good company. Now, as we are mostly ignorant about first century labor practices, you might assume that this parable is rooted in the regular practices of the day. But it's not. Not at all. The master in this story does not behave normally, does not act in a way that a typical landowner, a wealthy vineyard landowner, uh, would act. Uh, Think of it something like this. Imagine it's the week before Christmas, and um, Andy Jassy, the the new CEO of uh, Amazon, he knows that he needs more workers for his warehouse, because there's going to be a lot more packages, there's going to be a lot more shipping, and so what does he do? He goes down to the local unemployment office, And he stops by there every few hours looking for workers to hire workers. And then he gets in his pickup truck and he drives around the block looking for guys just standing in the street corners to see how many of those guys he can hire as well. Do you think he would do that? Absolutely not, right? Do you think he would actually go and talk to some of these folks and negotiate a minimum wage with them? You know he's not going to do that. He has workers or computers that will do that for him. He will know exactly how many workers he needs, exactly what he's going to pay. I mean, it's, it's all figured out. This master, like, it's crazy that he would do this. There is no way he's going to go looking around every few hours to see who might be available to work his vineyards. He has slaves. He has servants. He would have them go, and he would have them go and hire everybody he needs first thing in the morning. And yet, this master follows this weird series of actions. And then when the day is done and night falls, the master gives his foreman this odd instruction. Call the laborers and pay them their wages beginning with the last up to the first. Pay them in the reverse order of when they were hired. And then comes the surprise of the parable. Instead of paying the one-hour workers one-twelfth of a denarius, that is uh, a fraction of of the number of hours that they worked, he pays them an entire day's salary, a whole denarius. Now, you can imagine, if you're 
one of the all-day workers, and you're standing at the back of the line waiting to get your pay for the day, that news is going to travel down that line. You hear, oh my gosh, that guy who only worked one hour, he got a full day's wage. And so even though you know you negotiated to work for that same amount, you've got to be thinking, I'm going to get more. I'm going to get a bonus. Right? Because if that guy gets a full denarius, then I've got it. I deserve more. Because I worked more. A lot more. He worked one hour at the end of the day. I worked 12 hours in the scorching sun. I deserve more. But when it comes time to receive the pay, he gets the same denarius as he had negotiated. And so he begins to grumble. Do you remember the first time you learned that every seat on an airplane costs different? I don't know. I I still remember the day because, um, I mean, I I know that, you know, people who sit in the first class, those seats cost more. I, I accept that. But I thought my seat in 3A would be the same as the guy sitting in 10C, right? It's the same seat, essentially. I thought all the seats were the same price. So this was back in the days, you know, when you actually had to go through a travel agent to get a, uh, an airplane ticket. And so I remember at one time I, I got a ticket. I thought I had a really good deal on the price. My agent told me this is a really good price. So I'm sitting there, and I overhear the guy sitting next to me just talking about what he paid. And I was just shocked at how much less he paid. Right? So even though I thought I got a good deal, and it probably was, hearing that this guy sitting next to me, in the exact same seat, essentially, paid less, just seemed unfair. I felt like I overpaid now. It's, it's not fair. Same seat should be the same price. The same amount of work, right, should be paid the same amount of pay. So why would the master insist on doing it this way? What's the point of Jesus' stories in telling it this way? It's like he's deliberately trying to create controversy. Had the master instructed his sermon, hey, just pay everybody for the number of hours that they work. The first guy, just give him one-twelfth of a denarius, and everybody for the number of hours they worked, and everybody would be happy. No one would complain. That's what everyone agreed to, essentially. Or... Pay the all-day workers first, give them the full denarius, and have them go home, right? So if you're going to pay the back-end guys a little extra, they won't hear about it. No complaints. But the way he sets it up, he deliberately wants them to, to know and to complain. Why would he do that? And then so when he hears the complaints, which he must have expected, he responds in this way. Now, first, notice that the master treats the complainer with great courtesy. As a wealthy landowner, he could have been very contemptuous. You know, these are just day workers. He could have cared nothing for them. There's so many of them, right? But instead, he calls him friend. He addresses him as friend. And then he gently reminds him, hey, you know, I didn't do anything wrong. We agreed. This was a, this was a fair wage. You agree for this amount, you did it, and I'm paying you what I promised. And on top of that, he says, hey, you know what? It's my money. 
If I want to be generous, if I want to throw it away, if I want to waste it, that's me. That's on me. What do you care? You got what you bargained for. Right? I'm being fair to you. I didn't do anything wrong. The master insists on his sovereignty, on his freedom to do what he wants because it's his. And then he asks, or do you begrudge my generosity? Uh, Now, this translation is is a bit misleading because in the Greek, it literally reads, is your eye evil because I am good? The word is good, not generous. Is your eye evil because I am good? And and evil eye is an idiom for jealousy, for, for coveting, right? For envy. Is your eye like that because I am good, right? It suggests this deeper problem of the heart, a twisted disposition. I think that our natural alignment with the one who is complaining suggests that this is a disposition of our own hearts. Maybe the reason that this parable bothers so many people, so many Christians, is that it gets at one of our core idolatries. We value ourselves and others by comparing the bottom line. We judge people by the bottom line. But this parable is not really or directly about that. Now, certainly we can read this parable as a kind of a in a a broad sort of way and maybe think about, okay, maybe I should be more generous with my money or something like that. But that's really not the point of this parable. This parable is not advice or a commandment about how to run a vineyard or how to to run a business, right? That's not what this is. This is not about what you should pay your employees or how you should act as an employer. This is not an illustration of some have advocated for socialism or for any other economic system for or against. Nor is this something that we can directly apply to other areas of our lives, like, uh, like teachers, right? This is not saying, hey, teachers, regardless of what your students do, whether they're in class all day, show up for every class, or the kid shows up at the last day for one class only, give them all A's. Rather, Jesus said at the beginning of this parable, he's trying to tell us something about the nature of the kingdom of heaven. What is the kingdom of heaven like? That's what he's getting at. And so first of all, the parable tells us something about the goodness of God. Something about the goodness of God. That God is free that God is sovereign, that God keeps his promises, and that God can reward with his good and his goodness as he wishes. In the kingdom of God, what God considers fair is actually goodness and more than what is deserved or earned. That question, is your eye evil because I am good, challenges our basic notions about who God is, the nature of God. Is God good? Is God fair? That's the question. And just a few verses earlier in chapter 19, Jesus had said that only God is good. And so here now we have an illustration of what that goodness might look like. God's goodness goes beyond legal fairness. 
God's goodness understands that the guy who worked one hour needs a full denarius to survive. Just because he only worked one hour doesn't mean that he needs less money in order to survive. He needs as much as the guy who worked all day. And God's goodness makes sure that each and everyone has enough for the day. Like the manna God provided in the wilderness. This is an answer to the prayers. Give us this day our daily bread. It's not extravagant, but it's enough for the day. And God's goodness seeks out even those who have lost hope. Right? Even those who thought they wouldn't get work. The master goes looking in that final hour to find those last few workers who are still sticking around the marketplace, hoping maybe something, and he gives them a job. God's goodness knows that those one-hour workers were worrying all day about how to feed their families. It wasn't that they were lazy. It was that they were unemployed. They're waiting for work. Suggests that all who want to do the work of God will be given work no matter what time or what season of life they may be in, and that God's goodness extends even to those who complain. Secondly, I think the parable tells us something about the offensiveness of grace. You know, on our mission trips to Kenya, uh, I'm always struck by how difficult it is to communicate or to explain the concept of grace. Uh, I remember uh, one year, uh, the focus of our teaching was on this uh, parable the, uh, of the prodigal son. And again and again, I had high school Muslim students come up to me and tell me, it's not fair. I don't understand. This is not fair. They understood the anger of the older brother. They could not understand how the father would receive back the younger son who had so you know, reviled the father and had been so wasteful. It's, it's not fair. I heard again and again, it's not fair. In other words, it's, it's not right, right? If I work 12 hours and someone else works only one hour, I've got to be paid more. I think most of us think this way, in part, well, because that's the way the world works. We, we accept that. And because I think we see ourselves largely as the all-day workers, right? When we hear this story, we typically identify with the all-day workers. We may not even admit it to ourselves, but I suspect that most of you, myself included, you know, who are trying to live good, moral, upright, disciplined Christian lives, you, you slip into this mode of thinking that because you're an all-day worker, because you've been doing the right things, you come to church you pray, you fast, you give, that somehow you're a little bit more, just a little bit more deserving of God's grace. I mean, we we might accept our need for grace to be saved, but in our daily practical living, I think we are generally far too confident of our own faithfulness and commitments and judge others for their lack of commitment and faithfulness. And we find offensive this act of rewarding those who have not had the same level of commitment as we have. 
This is really, I mean, this is the offensiveness of grace. What kind of God would reward wasteful, lazy people like tax collectors and sinners and the latecomers equally with those good, hard-working people, righteous people like me and my friends, the Pharisees? This has been the complaint of all good religious people throughout the centuries. Remember the prophet Jonah? He sat on the outskirts of the city of Nineveh and he grumbled that God was sparing the lives of these terrible people, his enemies. The Pharisee who did everything according to the law, who followed God's word down to the last dot, he prayed giving thanks to God that he was not like the others, like that sinful tax collector. And yet it was the tax collector that God forgave and not him. It's not fair. It's not fair. In the musical Les Miserables, Javert sings during Fantine's arrest, honest work, just reward. That's the way to please the Lord. Honest work, just reward. That's the way to please the Lord. That's what a lot of religious people think and even want. But in God's economy, everyone receives the same reward. And it's hard to accept, right? It's hard to accept because we are the hard workers. We are the ones who have kept the law. We are the ones who have done what we're supposed to do. I know you may not do this intentionally, but I think you know, we, we slip into this sort of um, keeping of a spiritual scorecard. right? We, we measure our spirituality of how well we're doing by what we do for the church. We pride ourselves in showing up early, even when you had to get up an hour early today. I came to church on time. I came early. I helped set up. I tithe more this year. I stay after church to help clean up. I serve on two committees. I've been on more mission trips than you have. And those other folks, I mean, they show up late. They come once a month. It's so easy to think, I'm doing more. I deserve a little more grace. Just just a little bit more. But God's goodness, God's grace, it just rips away at all of our presumed privileges, all the, the claims of righteousness that we have, all of our sensibilities of our spiritual entitlements. And we're placed all on the same boat. This is the stumbling block of the gospel. The parable tells us something about the goodness of God, the offensiveness of grace. But as you read this story, you understand that its main point, its main point is about the fundamental reordering of life in the kingdom of God. In our world, the first are first. The wealthy, the young, the white, the male, and other markers of privilege and status. But in God's kingdom, verse 2016, so the last will be first and the first last. Now, what does that mean? Now, this is one of those cases where you really have to see the parable in context to really get at the meaning. The reading begins in chapter 20, verse 1, but you know, all of the chapter and verse markings, they're entirely arbitrary. 
that really, you know, a, a good editor would reorganize with the chapter numbers and ver- verse numbering because it's not done very well. Uh, and so if you read chapter 19, if you read just what happens right before, you'll see that chapter 19 and chapter 20 should be read together, that both chapters are really focused on this idea of the last being first and the first being last. And so if we go back to chapter 19, at the end of chapter 19, the very last words in chapter 19 is this. But many, Jesus says, but many who are first will be last and the last first. And then the parable concludes with so the last will be first and the first last. You see? This parable is positioned to explain what Jesus said at the end of chapter 19. So we have to go back to chapter 19 to see what was Jesus talking about? What was he addressing? So that Jesus said many who are first will be last and the first last. So if we look at chapter 19, we'll see that it begins a new section with the Pharisees asking a question about divorce. And then children are brought to Jesus. Now the Pharisees are talking about divorce, they're talking about adults, but Jesus sees that it's not about adults who are the first. It's about the children who are the last, the least. And so when the disciples try to shoo the children away, just no, no, no. Let the children come to him because that's what the kingdom of God is all about. It's about them, the least, the last. And then after that, after Jesus blesses the children, a rich young man, another representative of the first, he comes and he says, teacher, what good deed must I do to inherit eternal life? What good, right? So that word good now links us back to our parable. And Jesus says, well, you know, love the Lord your God and love your neighbors. And, and the young man says, hey, I, I did all of that. And Jesus says, great. Then sell all you have and come follow me. And the young man, the rich man, he says, I can't do that. He's sorrowful and he walks away because he did not want to part with his wealth. And someone paraphrased Jesus and wrote that it's easier for a Mercedes to go through a subway turnstile than it is for a rich man to enter into the kingdom of God. And then Peter says, seeing this guy walk away, he says, hey, we've left everything to follow you. We're not like that guy. We left everything. So what do we get? What's our reward? And Jesus says, in the new world, when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne... You who have followed me will also sit on 12 thrones, judging the 12 tribes of Israel. And everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or lands for my name's sake will receive a hundredfold and inherit eternal life. And then he ends that by saying, but many who are first will be last and the last first. And so you see now the parable that Jesus tells us The parable that we just heard is an answer to this. Peter's asking, hey, what do we get? Because we gave up everything. Do we get to be first? We get the hundredfold. We get the thrones because we gave up everything. And Jesus says, many who are first will be last. Now, I think Peter's thinking, We're the last, right? So we're going to be first. 
You know, historically, the church has understood the parable allegorically. God hires workers for his kingdom work. The early workers are Jews, and the Gentiles are the last-minute hires. We're all hired at different times, but as long as we're working in the field, as long as God hires us, we will all receive the reward of salvation in the end. And then during the period of the Reformation, the Protestants saw in this parable the triumph of grace over works. The last batch of workers, as you read the parable, they come to work without the promise of payment. And so the Protestants read this parable saying they work by faith, trusting that the master will reward them accordingly. They did it without the promise of a reward, without a contract, And so this last group of workers, that's us, the Protestants, we're the good ones because we came to work by faith without the promise of any reward, trusting in the master. Now, as appealing as it is to put ourselves in that position, once we interpret it that way, you see what we're doing. We've just made ourselves the first once again. We've made the one-hour workers the first. We are now the spiritually privileged ones. And I think as we do that, we will likely find ourselves at the back of the line and grumbling. So here's the, here's, the, here's the last thing, or maybe it's the first thing. The complaint was that the master made the one-hour workers of equal value as the all-day workers. He made everyone equally valuable, regardless of productivity, regardless of what they contributed to the master. You know, everyone woke up that morning in the same boat. No one had jobs, none of them. Day laborers then and now were some of the most vulnerable people in Jesus' day. You know, even slaves at least had the security of, you know, shelter, food, and work. But day laborers, they lived incredibly precarious lives. They were just one step away, maybe some small injury, an illness, from death and starvation. That morning, when they showed up hoping for work, They were all fortunate. They all got to work. The master came looking for them, found them, and they all got work so that they had enough to sustain for one more day. They were all equal recipients of grace. As the Apostle Paul wrote to the Corinthians, what do you have that you did not receive? If you received it, then why do you boast as if you did not receive it? It's true that some worked all day in the heat, but the others also suffered. They suffered the the mental anguish of not knowing if they would be able to provide food for the day for their families. They were so desperate, they stayed against hope all day long, hoping to be hired. What's harder, working all day or not having work and worrying all day? 
I think those of us who have the security of employment ought at least to have the compassion on those who do not have that luxury. So the crux of the complaint is that it's set up as us versus them, even though they all began in the same situation. So much of what's going on in the world, whether it's politics, whether it's ethnic strife or racial inequalities, it's all about us against them, that we are the good guys, that we are more deserving than them. But what if instead we reimagine this scene, this parable, reimagine this so that one of those one-hour workers is your nephew, is your sister, is your uncle? What if one of those who weren't picked early in the morning was your younger brother? You know, maybe many of you, I, I suspect, you know, you're young and strong. So you feel like you'll get picked early for a job. Like, I know where I am now. I'm not going to get picked first. <laughs> and rightly so. I shouldn't be picked first. Right? And all of you, no matter how strong you are now, someday you're not going to get picked first. That day is coming. So if you think of those others who aren't as qualified or as strong as you right now, if you think of them as your brothers and your sisters, as your mothers and your fathers, wouldn't you be glad? Wouldn't you be glad if everyone got a full denarius? Wouldn't you be thankful that your little brother who can't work as much as you still got enough to pay for bread for that day? The more you feel connected to the others, the greater your own happiness will be. In the kingdom of God, I don't think it matters who's standing in the front of the line or who's standing at the end of the line. All will receive the same wages. Well done, good and faithful servant. All will have enough. All will be equally loved. And shouldn't that bring us joy rather than envy? Shouldn't that be a cause of celebration rather than jealousy? If we are offended by this parable, by the success or the fortunes of others, deserved or not, perhaps it's because we have not come to fully appreciate the goodness of God in our own lives. Perhaps it's because we have not understood that these are brothers and our sisters, our mothers and our fathers. Perhaps we have not yet fully embraced the grace with which we also have been saved. The Lord has called all of us to work in his vineyard. He seeks and calls all who are willing to labor, whether one hour or all day. So in his name, I invite you once again to get to work. To get to work through the life and ministry of this church. Let's pray for more laborers in the Lord's field. Let's share the joy of others joining in that work. Let's make that kingdom line Longer and longer and longer. And if we have to stand at the back of the line, praise God. 
Let's pray together. God, would you help us to reimagine our living so that it is more in line with your kingdom values. Rather than complaining about what may seem unfair, help us to recognize your goodness and that the needs of others are just as great as my own needs. We pray, God, for more laborers. We see the work that needs to be done, that the harvest is ready. So help us, God, to the work together and celebrate that others are joining in the work, whether all day with us or whether we are coming at the last minute. Help us to find our joy that we are all doing this kingdom work together and in your goodness, save us all. We ask in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen.